Hello, I'm Andrew Hales. Today I'm here with Dr. B. Hi, Andrew. How are you? Real good. Expert on addiction, would you say? Sure. That's what they, uh, yeah, I don't, yeah, that's what, that's what I'm considered as. Well, you, you founded a, a nonprofit. Yes. What's this called? Uh, I have a nonprofit aftercare, which is in the, in the industry, they call it PHP IOP programming. It's called American Addiction Institute of Mind and Medicine, uh, and I have that in addition to my private medical practice. What got you into studying addiction? Oh, it's kind of interesting. Um, so by training and background, I'm, uh, I guess, what you would call an academic emergency physician doctor. Um, in that capacity, I've always worked at a university hospital, uh, you train residents, you do research, you train medical students, undergraduates, uh, you lecture. <clears throat> and uh, for most of my career, I worked at a county facility in uh, actually Bakersfield, Kern Medical Center. And you know, it's, it was a wonderful job and I loved the population. And uh, sort of a, you know, emergency medicine, they say you're the jack of all trades, master of none, which I actually kind of disagree with. But one of the areas from emergency medicine is toxicology and substance abuse. And in particular, you deal with a lot of overdoses. Uh, in the facility I was at and in Kern County in general, it's a lower socioeconomic kind of pool of patients and it's a county facility. So you get a lot of people that use the emergency department as their primary care facility. And then uh, over there you get a lot of uh, heroin addicts and every other kind of patient that comes in. And one of the things I started to notice uh, in that environment in the 2000s was you would get a guy in and you know he was a serious heroin addict and uh, he comes in with this large abscess. I even have the picture of this. I used to use it for teaching. This one guy had this large abscess in his left shoulder. And what had happened is that's where he was muscling his heroin. And uh, he had come in originally, and the plastic surgeons had tried to do a skin graft. Uh, he wasn't getting enough pain medications or whatever the case was. He just bounced, and he left. And this, now he had come back several weeks later. And basically he had this shoulder that was necrotic and f falling off. It, it wasn't funny, it was pretty sad. And he had this skin graft on there and he was in a lot of pain. It's just painful to have an abscess. Now you got this whole thing, it was necrotic black tissue. So he was gonna be admitted to uh, uh, surgery and plastics and uh, everybody was involved. Their emergency department was involved. Internal medicine was involved. Plastics was involved and no one could get a line in this guy. And I'm like, yeah, I'm gonna throw a central line in, get it right in his heart, and let's give him the appropriate pain medication. And nobody wanted to do that. And it just didn't make sense to me uh, for all of the above reasons. Number one, this would be a painful condition for any person. Number two, if you have uh, heroin addiction, you're gonna have this thing called opiate-induced hyperalgesia. Uh, which the mechanism is not important, but what's important is that you sense pain much worse than the regular person. And well, here's a patient, he's got this issue, heroin addiction. He left because his pain wasn't being treated appropriately. And here he is, and you know, they wanna give him two milligrams of intramuscular morphine every two hours. And I'm thinking, you know, I think about eight to 10 is more appropriate and we should put a central line in this guy. That was, 
I would have a series of events like this happening all the time, and I'm not criticizing the medical team. You know, this is a cultural perception and attitude, and you know, they were doing the best they have with the cognitive tools they had and how they approached this. So this was one thing that happened regularly. The second thing that happened regularly was this. Uh, before everyone knew what Narcan was, I don't know if you know what it is, it's an opiate reversal drug that's really big in, the, in this population now, a lot of discourse about it. Uh, you overdose on heroin, out in the field, you would get a large dose of an opiate reversal drug. So you're sitting on a park bench, and I remember this very specifically and it would happen all the time. You're sitting on a park bench, they find you overdose and the paramedics get there and they give you this large dose of Narcan, which should be 0.4, but they give two milligrams for a lot of reasons. And he comes in to the ER. When you get a dose like that when you're an opiate addict, you go into what's called precipitated withdrawal, which is withdrawals times 100. It's painful. So this guy would wake right up, start breathing, he's thrashing about, he's kicking around, and he's just miserable. And I, I, I didn't appreciate it, the attitude of my residents, of the internal medicine residents, the general team. Again, I'm not criticizing the healthcare team, and this is in the 2000s. But, you know, uh, I, I didn't think there was anything passive or funny about it. Yes, we saved his life, right? Uh, but this is a human being. He's got this issue. Uh, I'm not going to judge him for it. And what I would do at that time is, you know, because I got to make him stay in the hospital to make sure he doesn't have all the, you know, post-acute complications like pulmonary edema, the stuff taking over again, the opiates, and I got to keep him in for 8 to 24 hours. So I would give him 10 milligrams of morphine, and you can't pull that kind of thing off nowadays. So it was these kinds of things that uh, kind of made, and then there was a whole bunch of guys regularly that would come in with uh, end-stage hepatitis C, heroin addicts, and I would drain their belly. And, you know, I just, uh, something about this really captured me. And it might be because of my own personal life history, and I started getting more and more into it. And eventually, when I came down to Irvine and I uh, had the professorship at UC Irvine, you know, at some point I was like, you know, uh, I, I want to do this. And in the area where I work, I, you know, I didn't think the care that was being delivered, the systematic and individual care was really up to par based on what's called evidence-based medicine and compassionate professional, professional care. So I left and started doing this, and that was about four years ago. So you're for medicated treatment. Medication-assisted treatment? Right. Yeah. And that's not, or that's a controversial topic right now? In the U.S., it's a very controversial topic. Suboxone, yeah, yeah, all yeah. that. And, but you, your preferred drug is, uh, it starts with a B, what's it? Buprenorphine? Yeah, it's the same thing as Suboxone. Oh, is for, it really? For clinical purposes, it's the same. Okay, thing. all right. <laughs> What's uh, if someone goes on that, are most people able to taper off safely off uh, opiates? Yeah, uh, great question. It is an opiate, but it's a particular type of opiate. So let's. Uh, I, I just want to clarify that. Right. Uh, versus heroin or oxys are what's called agonist, straight, full agonist opiates. The magic in this medication is an agonist antagonist. If you want to talk about that, we can. But I think your central question is, can they taper off, right? Mm -hmm. And here's the answer. And I get a lot of uh, you know, feedback on this on the YouTube channel where people get angry. How, how can I put this without creating too much? Uh, um, number one, 
that question should be managed with the individual patient, right? Mm -hmm. Number two, if you were a patient and you came into office, you're like, when do I get off this stuff? My honest answer would be, I don't know. There's no validated clinical data that guides me saying, hey, this is the time you get them off. There's no validated research data that tells me you should get them off. Okay, so that's point one. I do have a lot of clinical experience of when I should get off because I know uh, from your psychosocial disposition, it's a reflection of your f physiology and, and uh, the brain architecture that's happening. For example, you know, if you're showing up now to clinic, you know, three years later, you're paying your bills, you're married, you're not in jail, you don't have, you're not getting hepatitis C, you're not getting hepatitis B, you don't think about dope, uh, the last thing on your mind is getting high, you have a job, you have a family, and you want to start a discussion about getting it off, that tells me your frontal cortex has changed significantly and we can approach that discussion. But let's take a, you know, to really drive this point home because you get a lot of lashback about this, well, I'm trading one addiction for another. No, you're not. That's not the definition of addiction, right? The definition of addiction is something, part of that definition is that completely consumes you and you spend more and more and more time in pursuit of that object and you lose everything else in life, including your personal physical life for that substance, okay? So if Suboxone is an uh, uh, object of my addiction, so is my insulin and so is my blood pressure medication and so is my blood thinner. Maybe SSRIs? In what sense are they a subject of addiction? <laughs> well, yeah, you know, like they're like a like they're much safer than Xanax and stuff for anxiety and depression. Absolutely, much safer than Xanax uh, for anxiety and depression. But you know, whatever that medication is, and should sorry, I keep? Yeah, yeah one sec, sorry. Okay. <laughs> if you ask me a question, I, I can go on forever. So you're gonna have to. Uh, yeah, I'll try If to, you get bored, I'll shut me up. But. Uh, <laughs> No, but I mean, but I, these I, are I important. I usually like that. It's easier. It makes my job easier. Yeah, too. I mean, I, these are important questions, and I think people should know about it because at the end of the day, we could save a life, Andrew. Right. All right. Let's see. So when, you know, someone asks me that question and they're uh, really, it's, it's really concerning to them, you know, I say to them, let's evaluate the risk versus benefits, okay? Right now, you're at a risk of overdose, death, hepatitis C, hepatitis B, HIV, soft tissue infections, endocarditis, pulmonary edema, uh, homelessness, prostitution, prison time, and losing everything you've worked for. That's, that, that's your addiction to whatever it is, oxys or, or heroin. Okay, if I put you on this medication, just like I use a cane, and let's say in theory, for whatever reason, you end up having to be on it till the day you die. Let's evaluate the risk. Let's evaluate the benefit. And, and I think we've, we're in a culture where uh, critical thinking, truth, 
uh, has sort of gone by the wayside. It's like, okay, now I'm addicted to this. This is horrible. What does that mean? I'm addicted to this. It's a medication that you have to take just like the guy with the, you know, who just has atrial fibrillation, which is a heart condition. He has to be on a blood thinner. Okay. You know, so, uh, yeah, there's a lot of stigma with yeah, medication and, and it's wrong. And you wouldn't ask it if you lived in another more progressive culture. Well, how do you decipher a patient that just wants to get high off pain meds or if they're in pain? Are you talking about Suboxone or uh, opiates? Well, can you get high off Suboxone? Yeah, great question. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> uh, you know, I think there's a, you know, if, you, if I gave you an 8 milligram strip of Suboxone, you'd probably get high right now, you know. Yeah. Uh, but if I keep giving it to you, not only would you get it, get tolerance and dependence to it, you would probably stop getting high. Um, and in fact, in a lot of detox programs are like, oh, he's drug seeking, he's getting off this suboxone. Oh, you know, the guy's doing a gram of heroin a day, you think he's really trying to get off, like high off suboxone. So, you know, for the most part, most people, they go about their day with no issues, right? Well, yeah, to simplify, um, if it's improving your life and you're happier, then keep doing it. And vice versa. Yes. Uh, but therein <laughs> lies a problem in that I think so problem in terms of interpretation. I have as a physician, if I'm doing my job right, I have to look at metadata, large clinical data. And what am I looking for? Uh, soft tissue infections, hepatitis C, hep B, HIV, death, homelessness, jail. And so when I look at the metadata across the planet, stuff works right? I can get you your health back, most people, not everybody, to a great extent, and I can get you your life back. Some of the other problems that occur with this, I get feedback on YouTube is that, oh, this stuff is worse than heroin to get off of the data that disagrees and methadone. This stuff is a nightmare. It took me. Uh, here's the issue with this. Any medication, and this is what's happening, the problem with our system now, everyone's, it's a cook, cookie cutter thing. Uh, you know, if you come to me and you're on a blood thinner, I'm going to manage that closely. I'm going to get levels of how thin your blood is. I'm going to adjust it regularly, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, well, this medication, whether it's this medication, whether it's benzos, whether it's stimulants for ADD or whatever it is you're doing. Look, if I'm going to make a decision to put you on a medication, it needs to be followed closely. The dosing needs to be followed closely. Your behavioral interventions that you're getting with my treatment program or outside, wherever you're getting, have to work closely and get together hand in hand. A monkey could prescribe you medications. They really can, right? But you know, a physician is supposed to, especially with something as complex as addiction, I should follow you extremely closely. I should empower you as a patient with education, autonomy, and respect, adjust the dose, and advise you about when to come off, how to come off. And I think there's a big mistake here with what's happening out there. And I'm not blaming anyone. It's a cultural, social thing. Well, didn't you just say before that you don't know when they should come off? Right. I so if you asked me, I can't pull out clinical data and say, uh, you know what? The studies have showed that after six months on this blood thinner, I can stop giving you the blood thinner and your chance of stroke goes down to the regular population. That's what I can't tell you. As a and that's exactly why as a clinician, 
I need to make a rapport with you. We need to make a professional clinical report. You need to follow up regularly. I need to constantly adjust and, and educate, look at what's going on in your life, evaluate what's going on in your life, how this is affecting it, and make that adjustment. And in time, we'll make that decision together. I'll give you my options as a professional and what I have seen and what the data shows. And then you tell me what you want to do. You, you pretty much just, based on their overall well-being, decide whether to keep giving them painkillers or I not? I don't. So uh, just to be clear, I don't give painkillers to anybody. Uh, I, my, my clinic, my medical, you know, in the ER, that would be a different thing. You know, you know somebody that's coming back every week, you know, and I haven't been in the ER for a few years, but every week they're coming back refilling and then you pull up a what's called the Cures Report, and, uh, you know, the Department of Justice, uh, California Department of Justice tells you what their uh, transactional pattern is in getting these medications. Uh, my clinic is it's kind of unique and interesting in that we are a substance abuse chronic care harm reduction clinic. That means you come there for your substance abuse strictly, and then the medication, and then the medications I deal with are Suboxone or tapering you off benzos or t tapering you off Adderall, adjusting medications. So you don't come to my clinic for pain medications. You know, I'm not a pain doctor. And a lot of people get confused on this point. What I do is it's a very common international model with a lot of data behind it. I'm going to look at your substance abuse in the same way I'm going to look at your diabetes as a chronic disease. That being said. I need to address your substance abuse first before I address your hepatitis, your HIV, your homelessness, because we need to get that under control so that you can address every other health met metric in your life. So I don't really prescribe pain medications. There's one or two cases that after a lot of negotiations with patients, I have decided to do a long-term taper off their pain medications. In fact, a lot of pain doctors send me their patients because their medications, I call it polypharmacy misuse, and I get everything in order. They're on Xanax, they're on Adderall, they're on uh, opiates, and uh, I spend a lot of time and a lot of interaction with patients to taper them off da dangerous medications and put them on the right medication, and then we say goodbye. I walk into your clinic, I'm addicted to painkillers. What's what are the f steps? What's the process you go through with them? In the medical clinic or in the uh, IOP? IOP, which is nonprofit, usually people call for that. And you know, I used to be called the Failure to Thrive program in my IOP program because people would go to 20, 25, 30 programs and then show up to me. Okay. Uh, but uh, if you talk, so tell IOP, me which, yeah. IOP, yeah. Uh, you know, for I, I would really evaluate if you're ready for that level of care because IOP level of care is ca is counseling, group counseling, individual counseling. Uh, and uh, what's special about what we do is, again, I apply the chronic care disease harm reduction approach there. I'm not, you, you're not there for a detox because this is a long-term thing. Uh, I absolutely advocate medication-assisted treatment in your care. So the first thing you know, I really do is, are you ready for that level of care or do you need something a little bit more intense, which would be you know, few days in a program, getting you off the substances, stabilizing you on Suboxone or any other medication I have on. That's your... That's the IOP. Okay. Uh, which would be that kind of more long-term psychosocial behavioral. But if you want to ask... The four days, 
detoxing is that what you do with your private practice no uh, i can again the term that yeah. you know i'm a little being a little bit vague because i don't buy into the terms detox in fact i think american society of addiction medication uh, medicine has changed those terms detox is the is a bad term because it implies a beginning and an end and you go your way you know i'd, I'd like to call it medication assisted withdrawal symptoms because the disease of addiction we have to approach so many more things and it takes so much longer to get you stable and back into society uh, does that make sense so even in my outpatient in my clinic you don't so let's take that in my outpatient you don't come in and say hey i'm on uh oxys or i'm on heroin and I want to get on Suboxone, and I don't write you a script and say, see you next month for your refill, right? But we do not do that. You know, besides all the paperwork and you got to give a urine test and we'll pull up your report, we're going to sit down. We're going to discuss two hours. Let's see where your mind is at. Let's see what's going on in your personal life. Let's build a relationship. Let's get you to a point where you understand you don't have to come in here and BS me, right? I'm not here to judge you. I don't care what you've done out there. I don't care what you've done in the past. My goal here is to first reduce the dangers of the opiates that you're on. So let's really get you on this medication. And then let's start rebuilding what, you know, that frontal cortex. So you make, you start having a sober life. Uh, uh, there's quite a bit of complexity to this, but you know, you're going to get two days of medication. If you've been getting your heroin every day out there and you can do that, then I'll tell you what, you can show back up here in two days and have another conversation with me. Let's see if you got clean. And if you didn't get clean, still show back up. You know, I've heard of practitioners charging more for people relapsing, which is Really, I wonder if it's a, a illegal or kicking people out of the clinic. I do not kick anybody out of the program unless if they uh, do something really that kind of shows their sociopathic tendencies. If they steal scripts or if there's some really criminal. Yeah, you know, there's been people in my outpatient that have come in every week for two years and they've used every week for two years and then they finally got clean. That that. That's, you know, I think that's a real depth in understanding the difficulty with this disease and the importance of continued engagement and empowerment of every individual patient. And I don't even like to call them addicts. They're not addicts. There's somebody with a problem. They're Joe, they're Jeff, they're Jill. And part of who they are is this substance issue that should not define them, but it should empower them to move forward and we will get there. When? I don't know. Six months, two months, next week? But I continue the engagement and this is the harm reduction approach. It's, it's about justice. It's about truly keeping the patient as an autonomous individual human being that deserves respect and deserves autonomy and should be allowed to grow within this disease that they're dealing with and you should empower them. So I cut everybody differently, their doses, their engagement. Some people come in once every two months after they're you know, stable. Hey, how are you? How's the work going? Some people come in every other day and uh, it doesn't increase my payment, by the way, just so you know, this is a, you know, if you need to come in every other day, you're gonna come in every other day and we're gonna chat. You're gonna tell me what you did. That's what I do. The medication is nothing but a tool that a clinician should use. One small tool 
in addition to everything else you do to start giving these people's lives back. Can you build a tolerance to Suboxone? If you mean by tolerance... Do you, you need more and more of it? No. You sure? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> now, of all the patients that I've treated, uh, you know, you might get a couple of comments. No, this is nonsense. Uh, you know, I've had one patient that kept taking four or five a day when they wanted, I wanted them to take three a day and they kept lying about it. And I actually fired them from the clinic after giving, I have you know, rarely seen that. Uh, you, and that, that's one of the things about Suboxone. There's a ceiling effect. It's, that, that's the beauty of it. Right. You know, there's a ceiling effect. And it's that, you know, that, that's one of the things that why it, it doesn't fall into the category. You build a physiological dependence, but this is a funny thing to say. Most of these folks are already doing high doses of opiates. You're just cross-tolerancing them. What's the process of detoxing off benzos? And same exact thing. You got to do it with that harm reduction approach, chronic disease model approach. And you got to understand the system doesn't really allow doctors to do this the right way. Uh, the literature is clear. Number one, let's make something clear. Depends on your age, your sex, how long you've been using, the frequency of use and your comorbid disease, uh, whether it's, you know, you have uh, seizure disorders or whether you have severe hypertension. So all of that has to be taken account, number one. Number two, when you come in, in general, we do a cross tolerance. We go from, I'm going to go usually, usually again, sometimes not from Xanax to something like Valium, something like Ativan, something like Clonopin, because why? The general idea is Xanax, because it's so fast acting and you come off of it so quick, it is, you are more prone to abuse and addiction. So we use that concept like every other physician does and should probably, and we do a cross tolerance to Clonopin, Valium, and Ativan. And then depending on who you are, and this is why the system doesn't really support it, I will do anything from a three-month to a three-year taper. And you have to see these people, uh, you know, people dependent on benzodiazepines, whether young or old. The minute you mention to them, hey, you know, we're going to have to, uh, you know, you, you know, you're 25 years old. You're, you're on six milligrams of Xanax a day or whatever it is, four milligrams. We, we should really get off that. You should see the horror on people's face. This, this, yeah. this is a very, I understand that addiction very well, I think. I mean, they are, they get uncomfortable. They want to get out of the office. They, and, I, and so how do you do this? And, you know, this is how I do it. I'm like, you know, Joe, relax. I'm not cutting off your prescription. You came to me with this issue. You've been on the, I'm not cutting off this prescription. I mean, you know, you're on the Suboxone. I want you to just think about this. Uh, and, you know, I will never, ever hurt you. And then when the rapport is built, when that trust is built, uh, it might be our next week's visit. It might be two months down the line. I say, bring your bottle that I, you know, just prescribed to you. And um, I almost wonder if this should be proprietary because, uh, you know, I don't know if anyone does, does this, but it works. Uh, so Joe brings the medication and I'm like, pull it out. You know, what, what do you do? He's like, well, you know, I get you give me two of these a day. This is what I came to you with. And uh, so I take the form, but I really need it. I can't, I can't get long. I'm like, I understand. Relax, take it easy. Now we've become buddies, right? We've spent some time. I'm like, you take two of these pills a day. Here's what I want you to do. I'm going to see you in one month, like I always do now. And I'm going to give you your 60 pills, two a day, 30 days, 60 of them. 
and there's two pills. Tell me which one is the least important for you in the day. And he might say, well, you know, the morning one is the least important. I get really stressed in the afternoon when I got to pick up my kids or I got to present this at work. Oh, okay, so the morning one. I want you to try something. Number one, cut these two pills in half, so it's four pills, okay? What I want you to do is have a much more even equilibrium in your system throughout the day. Can you do that for me, Joe? Yeah, yeah, I can do that. You know, I'll take it down. All right, the next thing I want you to do is throughout this day, one of those halves, just don't take it. Now, you're either going to do this for zero days for the next 30 days, or if you do really good, you're going to do it for 30 days. And you know what, Joe? I couldn't care less if you do it zero days or 30 days. I'm not going to cut off your prescription. I'm not going to judge you. I want to see what you do. So they come back. They're like, you know, some, sometimes it takes one or two times, and then that eventually they come back. Wow, I did it for four days, doc. I'm like, awesome, awesome. Please go home and grab your medication and bring it to me. Show, show me that. And then they get really paranoid because they have those four pills. They're like, because in their mind, I, I know that, you know, that uh, I, I'm going to put this away for a rainy day. If the world ends, I can have these four. So they bring it to me and I count one, two, three, four halves. Two, wow, you see that? Uh, did anything happen? No, 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 doc. And they're trying to grab it. I'm like, look, look, uh, take it easy. Like, I'm going to put these back here. I'm going to give it to you. And I'm going to write you for your 60 pills for this month. Here's what I want you to do. I'm not going to do it. I want to empower him, right? I want you to go and throw this away. And I want you to know I'm never going to hurt you or cut you off from this medication. And they go throw it away. And they come and tell you about it. Sometimes they'll chase me in the parking lot. They're like, Doc, come look at the pharmacist's garbage next door. I just threw this away. I'm like, I know, Joe. I know you can do this. And sometimes they get so excited, they get ahead of themselves and they get sick because they'll come in like in a week and they're shaking. I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, I knew I could do this. I'm like, don't cut back without my direction. And uh, you know what? Some of these patients, you should see them three months, six months, 12 months, 15 months down the line. Polypharmacy misuse from different practitioners, whatever the circumstances, they have their lives back in ways they never thought. You know, they'd go into a detox and they do this 10-day crazy taper and they come to me, they're shaking. Uh, and, and, and you're giving somebody empowerment. You're giving him autonomy. You're telling him you can do this thing on your own. I am nothing more than a lighthouse that's here as you drive your ship. And this eventually translates into other areas in their lives. You, most of the community believes addiction is a disease, a mental condition or mental disorder, and you don't dis and you disagree with this. I don't. Well. Or you do agree? I do. Uh, yeah, I think most of America thinks it's a moral failure, and that's what it's traditionally been. And, and the academic and professional societies have been trying to say, hey, no, this is a chronic relapsing remitting disease, uh, and it can be treated. I do agree with that. But I have other interests in that area, um, in that... You know, when you say something is or is not, if I say, you know what, uh, my shoe is here, 
And, you know, we verify that and we give it, you know, what a philosopher would call an ontological status uh, or epistemology. What is it to know that she was here? Well, you touch it, you feel it, and so on. Now, when you say something is a disease and we put it in the context of medicine and science, you know, uh, what can I point to? And there's a lot you can point to with functional MRIs, PET scans, changes in the brain behavior, but it's a model. And the model for me is a paradigm for me is only as good as predictability and intervention. Okay, the medical model of disease is fantastic to that extent because I can do quite a bit using medication, chronic disease model, engagement and harm reduction. But for me, uh, all of that stuff is interesting and I, you know, I've done thousands of it. I'm more interested in the sociological context that this is couched in because no disease and this is outside of my training because I'm not an anthropologist, I'm not a sociologist, I'm not a psychologist, I'm not even a psychiatrist. Uh, my background's critical care, emergency medicine at a university, but I have kind of different interests. For me, you know, uh, the anthropological and sociological context that a disease, especially this disease is couched in, is really important because if I can get a handle on that, I can make predictions and I can affect treatment. A diabetic, right? You know, let's take a disease, diabetes again. You just think it's a disease in the body, whether insulin receptors are desensitized, and so you have type 2 diabetes, or you're not producing insulin, you have type 1 diabetes. It's in your body, that's a disease. Actually, that disease is very intimately related to the environment and the sociology that you come from. I can take a group of people, let's say Native Americans or Alaskans or whatever, and move them from one environment to another environment, and within one to two, two generations, they all have diabetes, right? So you can see how important your environment is to your disease process. Now we go to diet, right? Right. Does right. that count in environment? Uh, yes, absolutely. Okay. So right. much more that, that you wouldn't think doesn't does count environment, but there could be a lot of other stresses, poverty, yeah. right? Diet, education. I mean, it's very, it's it's quite expansive and extensive. Yeah, but it's got to be like ninety percent diet causing all, all our problems. Yeah, with the diabetes thing. Yeah. Yeah, but you know, uh, diet is also correlated to you don't see well-to-do, well-financed, highly educated people going to uh, Del Taco at eight in the morning and giving it her kid a f uh, forty-eight ounce. <laughs> you know, yeah, which. Yeah. So uh, it's, you know, it's complex. Now with addiction, same thing. Even if you look up the definition, it's kind of, uh, you know, it's kind of enigmatic. It's called psychosocial disease of the brain, psychosocial spiritual. Well, what does that mean? And my real interest nowadays is the, uh, the sociological explanation of addiction in our culture and society. I took that person, spent two years getting him sober, and he was 19, when he uh, met him, now he's 21, and he's been uh, banging dope and uh, meth and benzyl since he was 14. Now I'm supposed to say, Brody, go back into that same environment that turned you into an addict. Something was wrong. Something was definitely wrong in the, in the cultural environment that we're producing, you know, what they call now an epidemic. Uh, and that I'm very interested in that and I treat, you know, I have my own ideas of what's going on, 
but I, I, I treat my patients with that idea in mind, trying to put them back into that society. For example, you know, let's say a guy named Brody. You know, what am I going to say? Brody, go back to that shitty home that you came from with all the violence and so, so forth that's going on. Go get that crappy job at uh, whatever uh, mini mart or place that you wanted to work at for $12 an hour with no education. Be depressed. Uh, think people on social media are your friends have no prospect of a good education, buying a home, uh, having a good relationship, and feel as crappy as you did when you started uh, you know, curling up in the warmth of that heroin that you did. Go back to that. It's a great world. I absolutely advocate for it. And go back. So you know, this is a long discussion and it's complex and it has to do with a lot of things for me, you know, and, uh, you know, polar economic, uh, you know, polarization of our society. Uh, so much of it has to do with addiction. But this is one of the areas I'm interested in. And when I get these people, what society, what social context am I going to plug them back into after I stop the substance abuse when it has to do with a drug? How do we combat the stigma and the social aspect of taking medication. Medication assisted treatment? Sure. Education. All right. The root of all evil is Videos like this. Huh? Videos like this. Videos like this. Yeah, I think the root of all uh, evil, the root of all injustice, uh, the root of all problems can be, in a sense, uh, resolved to great extent by education and getting people to think critically versus what I call, actually a term I stole from a guy, Chris Hedges, a public intellectual, magical thinking, delusional thinking. And you're for free education. Am I for free education? Uh, I, <laughs> it's funny. Yes, I absolutely uh, advocate free education uh, for all and uh, I advocate uh, prison reform and uh, educating people behind bars so they can go back into a society and uh, have some tools uh, and actually I, I feel that education uh, leads to better moral decision making let's go to Twitter to what I asked I asked my Twitter audience I, I usually take some of their questions let's see what's What's your definition of addiction? What is my definition of addiction? That's a question from Twitter. Yeah, it's from uh, Ezekiel Rabelto. Yeah. Um, I like the definition that the American Society of Addiction Medicine, you know, it's a very complex brain uh, dysfunction, but within that definition, I very much adhere to the fact that it's a psycho social and spiritual dysfunction and this is where i become very interested in dealing not just with the pharmacology but dealing with the individual empowering that individual and then being concerned how do i put them back in a society that i think is pathological and dysfunctional and and that's the great challenge for me you know i like i said you know a monkey could give you medications uh, you have to follow that medication closely and see what are the factors that got that person to where they are right now. It is not even, I couldn't care less if it was a choice or not. If It's not a moral thing. I'm a physician. I have to see how I can improve your physical body, your mind, and hopefully if there's other extenuating circumstances, plug you back into a society so you can be enriched personally, 
spiritually, emotionally, psychologically, and your society at large can benefit from the wonderful things that you have to give back. Well, yeah, it sounds like you do a lot of more one-on-one -on -one with them than most other doctors or physicians, and you're pretty much a psychiatrist, but you don't... I'm not a just I am not by training a psychiatrist, oh. uh, and I have some things to say about. Well, I guess it's like legally yeah. we have to say uh, that or whatever. Well, no, I don't. But I, you know, <laughs> because as a physician, you can practice anything legally, right? I can go uh -huh. do brain surgery if I want. I am not a psychiatrist, and psychiatrists, I think of them as neuropharmacists most of the time because they give medications and see you later. Yeah, I don't know what I am. Uh, but I have a very keen, you know, I wouldn't, um, you know, I, labels, you yeah. know, I, I don't know what I, I know I'm an MD and I, I know I'm an addiction specialist, but mm. uh, I, I don't know what I am, but that's what I do. I meet with them as much as that needs to be meted as much as my body and time allows. How do I convince someone that smokes weed every day for non-medical use is an addiction? How do you convince them? <laughs> yeah. 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 I, you know, <clears throat> I mean, how do you convince? I was just talking to an addict this morning, and he was uh, communicating with me that even in the deepest times of his addiction, he actually had to have legal consequences before he was like, oh, I have a serious cocaine addiction, right? Uh, you know, with marijuana, uh, I would not, there's a lot of good studies and data coming out regarding marijuana and the fact that it's a substance of abuse and addiction that has health consequences. But you know, I would really have a conversation with them that clinicians call motivational interviewing, right? And what that means is, again, respecting the autonomy of that individual, not being judgmental. But what you might wanna do is ask that person, what do you gain out of smoking, let's say, if they're smoking marijuana? What are the negative consequences of your marijuana use? And try to get them to see where the negative consequences are having more of an effect than the positive consequences. Build a rapport, build a trust, don't be judgmental. And sometimes, if it's appropriate, bring someone else into the discourse that that person trusts, respects, and has value for. But I think the most important thing, if it's a loved one, family member, someone close, you cannot approach them in a judgmental way. You know, approach them and lead them to a road of self-discovery and respect for that person's autonomy. Let them get there themselves. And that's called stages of change in the psychology lingo of someone who's an addict and needs to understand the consequences of what they're doing. At the end of the day, you agree, though, it, it's you really can't convince someone to stop if they don't want to. You cannot. But, and that's why, again, the chronic care, you're absolutely right. Yeah. And, but, but here's what, what is important. When you come into my clinic, I don't turn you away no matter where you're at. It's chronic, constant engagement to meet the patient where they're at. If I can give an example, uh, and I'm going to use an extreme example. Let's, let's take, I don't know, the Bronx, 1990. You know, AIDS is uh, blowing up. Or in 1996, seven, where the better medications are coming out. You have uh, ethnic, transgender, prostitute with HIV, hepatitis C, and heroin addiction. Let's throw it all in there. Sure. Okay. And, you know, you got to get them to the methadone and the needle exchange clinic. Okay. And meeting somebody where they're at, this is a person with a very complex set of problems, both physically, psychologically, and socially. 
And so I give you an appointment at 2 p.m. to come in and get your methadone so you don't go out chasing that dope, so you don't go out getting dirty needles, so you don't go out and continue prostitution, spread the, you know, harm reduction and meeting someone where they're at is accepting their addiction for now and saying, you know what, if you're an hour late, that's okay. If you're two hours late, that's okay. If I can absorb it, if you don't have the $30 for the drug, but you only have 20, that's okay. That's a harm reduction, continued engagement approach to addiction. And so when someone's at a stage where they're addicted, if I can keep that communication, engagement and empowerment open, the assumption is, and data actually backs me up, is I will get you to where I need to get you someday, maybe in a month, maybe in a year, and some of you I'll never get to. But the correct, humane, and validated approach to get the most number of people to a healthier place overall is what I just described. Right. It's a lot of work. Harm reduction. Yeah, it's a harm reduction approach. It's a... It's a chronic, it's a lot of work. And remember our paying system and a lot of people, uh, uh, you know, sort of uh, uh, really come down under physicians. You know, he sees me for five minutes, see you later, here's a prescription. I don't think the physician is to blame. I think we're all to blame. We created this society. We all have created the, uh, you know, insurance companies, the big pharma companies, the way the government works, the way, you know, that physician is also trying to make it in a system that doesn't allow him to practice medicine in the best way, whether he knows how or not. I'm sure if we had a system that kind of trains. So it's a lot of work, but we can do it. The opioid crisis is getting worse and worse each year, right? Right now, it looks like uh, I was just reading a public health report. It looks like it's still on the upward trend in terms of deaths and how much worse it's getting. Yeah. And what would you say is the main cause of that? No, over, over prescriptions? No, no, that's part of the... I, I don't want to say what's the main cause. Again, I, you know, Sam Quinones, he wrote a great book called Dreamland. He does a very nice outline of some of the factors that kind of, you know, it was the perfect storm of the black tar heroin from Mexico and the way these guys were marketing it at the same time, Purdue Pharmaceutical and the way they advertised and pushed for these drugs, which is just really tragic. If you look at what they based everything on was a lie, a letter in 1981 from a Harvard physician talking about this stuff is not addicting and he didn't mean it as a study. It's very fascinating. Mm. I'm not going to put one place or one blame on this, you know, even though, you know, you'll see people upset at the doctors, but I think it's multiple factors in a complex society that's dysfunctional, manic, and refuses to come to terms with the fact that this is multifactorial and we're all to blame. Uh, to a certain extent. I know that- I'm the, to blame? No, all of us, yeah. <laughs> all of, you know, it's, I, I'm to- What did I do? <laughs> uh, again, I'm not gonna, it's not individuals, you know, it's, huh. it, it, it's, it's our value systems, you know, oh, got it's it. what we consume. Right. It's, you know, it's all of it. You know, I was showing a alcohol commercial the other day and it showed this uh, beautiful woman and a beautiful man in a compromising position and it was, you know, promoting gin, 
you know? Well, they're not dumb. We consume that, right? And, uh, you know, so I want to blame all of us in some ways. Uh, you want to get into particular? Sure, big pharma, the heroin coming up from Mexico. You know, it's... Okay. Internet addiction, social media, does it have a solution? Do you, or it's that, real. Or, yeah, but is it it's still kind of in a trivial stage? Trivial in the sense of the impact that it's making? Um, yeah, I don't know. It's, no, I think it's making quite a bit of impact. It's real. Uh, in fact, uh, there's good data starting to come out now that the techniques they all use is the same techniques they picked up from casinos. Right. And uh, what are those that. things called? Slot machines? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they picked up those techniques. You know, even me with my... Uh, uh, you know, I get a hundred calls and texts a day, and when it, nowadays I get really annoyed by it. But it, when that thing goes off, you almost get happy or something. Yeah. Like you just want something, right? It's real. Mm-hmm. Uh, the solution is going to be complex. I think uh, you know, it's a social evolution is going to be our solution, and and, and 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 you know, it's it's a little little complex. But it lights up the same parts of the brain that heroin does. Yeah, and it's real. Same with porn. Same exact thing. The pornification yeah. of our society. Gambling, porn. And again, I'm not being moralistic here mm. at all, right? I'm just yeah. stating where these things are and how they affect us. Who's been the worst patient you've had? Can you share that story? A type of addiction and difficulty. Oh, in terms of difficulty treating? Sure. Or in terms of how evil they are. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Yeah. Well, let's hear the evil one first. Uh, evil. What do you mean evil? Like they, they take advantage of you or whatever. Yeah. Manipulate. You know, I mean, this is not because of the addiction. The person might just be a sociopath, and yeah. I deal with a lot of sociopaths. And every once in a while, in fact, there was recently one, uh, two of them that they would come into the office, and. It would make the hair my back stand because I'm like, this guy would probably chop me up and throw me away or walk up to me and, you know, inject me with something. And uh, those guys are scary. And yeah. and because they just will not by just just by a function of their personality pathology, whether it's, a, you know, psychopathy, whatever it is, or there's a lot of cluster B person. He will never, ever be honest and truthful with me. Right. So with those guys, uh, you know, I tried to, you know, there's one recently that uh, I found out uh, he was taking my prescriptions and writing them to government, showing them at government agencies where he had legal issues. I don't want to get too much into it and saying, hey, the doctor wrote me, uh, in fact, Adderall. That's why there's methamphetamines in my systems. And I looked at it and it looked beautiful. I'm like, yeah, I wrote that. And I'm like, wait, I don't write this guy Adderall. And so, you know, my assistant's like, you don't write that, Dr. B. And so he's scary because, you know, I could show him that and he'll just lie. I'm like, look, they, the cops just called me. You showed them this. You said you are. It's like, I don't like that. And that's scary. That's the evil. And at that point, I have to step away because there's something much deeper and different going on than the substance abuse. And I start to worry about the safety of my staff and so forth. In terms, So that's that part. And every once in a while, you get people like that. But as far as uh, addiction goes, some of these patients, uh, every once in a while, you get into a situation. And I have a hard time drawing the line there where no matter what you do, 
they're at a stage in their addiction that they will not stop. So, you know, you'll get a, somebody that comes into the program and we scholarship and I say, look, I can afford to scholarship you for three months in the IOP and so forth. You have to do X, Y, and Z. At some point, if you don't, all resources are going to run out, kid, and the only place for you is death or jail. And they cannot stop. And that becomes very difficult for me because I build a good relationship with most of the people I deal with. And then it becomes, uh, they become not just a danger to themselves, but they become a danger to the rest of the program by their behavior and people that are trying to get clean. And those become very difficult situations for me. I don't know what to do because the system and myself, we don't have the resources. He's got nowhere to go. And I've had a few of these guys. Those are very difficult for me where they just can't. And it's fascinating. It shows you the power of heroin or whatever it is, is the person has everything at stake. It might be their children, right? Mm -hmm. It might be them going to prison for years and they can't stop. And it's heartbreaking. And I feel when those things happen, I feel defeated because I take great pride in knowing, thinking I know what I'm doing. And, and I sit there and I'm like, did I miss something? Did I not do something wrong? Did I not offer a service that I could have? What did I miss here? And I have to walk away and let it go and just emotionally detach myself in a, you know, just for me to survive. Sociopaths. So sometimes, yeah, you can't help someone. Um, So what do you do? You're just like, I don't... You just stop accepting them? The sociopaths? No, no, not the sociopaths. The, the ones that you can't... That you feel defeated with. You know, at some point... All things declare themselves, right? All pathologies declare themselves. One way or another, the treatment stops. Either they leave... Or they have to be discharged from the program. Usually it's my IOP, PHP uh, program... Because, you know, you can't be doing heroin around kids that are trying to get clean. And uh, and then they go their way. Um, you know, I do different things with different people. You know, uh, if I have the resource to bring you back in, I always try and figure out a way where I can bring you back in where either this, our system can afford it. So, you know, you're not affecting the kids and you're not, uh, you know, systemically destroying the program. Or you're ready. So my, let's say, outpatient program, mm. people, there is a small set of people that in and out all the time. They go to jail, they get busted, or they keep using. But if, again, that continued engagement or the openness to allow you to engage, and there's science behind this. I'm just not making this crap up. You know, if you look at a sane, progressive, rational society that takes care of human beings, this is the way you do it. A place for that person to always go back. And eventually they all get there. Most of them get there. Yeah. So benzos, alcohol, any others you can die from? The withdrawals? The withdrawals, anything that's under the class of what's called sedative hypnotic. Uh, benzos, alcohol, barbiturates, the withdrawals okay. are deadly. Right. So you have to be very sane in your approach. And the withdrawals go on much longer than people think. You know, these little 10-day benzo detoxes that they give these people, these people are miserable and, and, and they're in bad shape. 
you know, weeks after, months after. And this is something, again, you got to use that approach. You got to be compassionate. You got to understand where they're going. You got to understand your pathophysiology, your physiology, your pharmacokinetics. And you have to also have some sense of humanity in approaching this person. What do you think of the war on drugs? Oh, that's nonsense. Okay. Yeah, at every level, whether you go back to Nixon or you bring it up to Nancy Reagan and the little, uh, you know, the rat uh, in the thing. You know, war on drugs is fascinating, actually. Uh, I don't know how familiar. It's not working. It's not working, and it's a lie. Uh, and it's, uh, you know, uh, the Rand Corporation, I don't know if you've ever heard of them, R-A-N-D. It's a big, kind of a right-wing, I think the right-wing think tank that does actually some good studies. Ayn Rand thing? Huh? Ayn, was it like an Ayn Rand it might have been donation uh, it, yeah. it might have been yeah in fact uh, yeah I, I can't remember now and, you know, okay. I think yeah. I've forgotten more than yeah uh, she was really right away yeah. yeah so you know I think it started with her they did a wonderful study in the early 90s I, it's been years since I read it but I think in 1993 and um, Noam Chomsky I was listening to a lecture and it kind of brought this back to my mind and I went back and looked it up and at that time we were just coming out of the cocaine epidemic or dealing with that Okay. So the Brand study and the U.S. military did a study and it had some questions. And the question was, what is the most effective way clinically and the cheapest way in terms of resource utilization to, effect, uh, to treat cocaine addiction or addiction? Okay. That was the question. What is the most effective way for the individual and what, what would cost the system less? And the study had what they call arms, arms of the study. That's how you do the studies. You know, this arm looks at this, this arm looks at this, this arm looks at this. And in short, uh, the study was very clear, you know. Uh, the crappiest way and the most expensive way, the least effective and most expensive way to approach addiction is looking at the supply of the drugs. That's one public policy way to deal with it. Uh, dealing with the uh, source of the drugs and incarceration. It's the least effective and most expensive way. Mm -hmm. The most effective way is treatment and education. This was a huge study. I remember last time I looked at it was years ago. It's about 126 pages long. It took me about a year to kind of get a feel for it because, you know, um, it, it's a... And, and this was in 93. And when you move forward from that time, what did we do? The incarceration rate for nonviolent drug offenses went through the roof. What they called crop decimation in Colombia, which is the wrong term, it's absolutely destruction of the natural resources, that just went through the roof, causing the second most displaced, marginalized population on the planet, I think after Sudan. These people were you know, already marginalized folks that were cocoa farmers, were all hanging around the cities and so forth. It did nothing for dealing with cocaine addiction in the United States. And there's a concept in legal theory which you can sort of pull out, and you know, this is for the nerdy legal scholars. Again, I'm not a lawyer and stuff. And this concept has to do with this. If you want to understand why a law is in place, look at the predictable consequences. What are the consequences of the crop decimation down in Colombia? Well, American companies all went down there and took over those lands that those guys couldn't grow anything on anymore and made a lot of money. What are the consequences of uh, uh, this kind of incarceration. Well, it attacks 
the racial minority, the economic minority, and it creates opportunity for organizations, especially in the federal system, what I call New York slavery, putting people to work for $28 a month and making a lot of money. This is a legal theoretical concept, and it just says, look at the obvious consequences of the laws that you make if what you're talking about doesn't fit the data. Imagine this. I'm sorry, one more thing. No, <laughs> so, you know, imagine one more. I just want you to conceptually yeah, yeah, yeah. imagine this. You know, no, I agree. we say we don't like what you grow down there, okay? You're, we don't like what you grow because our people are consuming it. So I'm going to get a bunch of B-52s and nukes and go down there and blow the crap out of, which is what we do, right? We go down there and we are paramilitary and, and just destroy your land. And, you know, I think it was Chomsky about that. Now, imagine uh, if China says, you know what? You guys are pretty good at education and prevention, and you basically eradicated smoking tobacco in your country, but you're killing millions here in China. I mean, that's a dead, sugar and tobacco are one of the deadliest substances on the planet. It's, you know, uh, hard drugs have no consequences compared to those things. China says, you know, you're killing about 200 million people a year from, from your American tobacco. So they get on B-52s, go over to South and North Carolina and Virginia and, and start throwing bombs on our lands. Wouldn't we look at that as insanity? Mm -hmm. Would we say that's justice? We're doing that. Keep that in mind. And so that's my position on drug policy and public policy in that greater sociological context of where we're failing and how we're failing in addition to all the other issues that I talked about, the social isolation, psychological, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, unpredictability and so on and so on and so on. You think drugs should be legal? <laughs> Another one can of, of worms. One yeah. of us is going to get. You know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a physician. That means I'm of the conservative class of people in this society that don't believe in any of those things. And I'm going to be very truthful for you. I completely, fully believe in decriminalization of drugs, not legalization. And when I say decriminalization. We don't have time to get into it, but if you put it in context and done appropriately, if we look at the model in Portugal and what they've done, uh, uh, absolute decriminalization of drugs. That means it's about the same as alcohol is now? Well, alcohol is a... Uh, no. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I, uh, alcohol I, is I mean, a bad example because alcohol kills a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't want to use alcohol, but yeah. I, I, I would say... Create a society where there's always going to be a percentage of people that are going to have addiction. That's the natural mathematical outcome of things, okay? That's a fact. Anything in nature, if you did a bell curve or if you started to go through the you know, outliers, addiction, let's say if I had the perfect society, you know how I talk about the sociological model, you're still going to have a small percentage of people that suffer from addiction. That's a natural mathematical outcome. Just like if you had the perfect society with no uh, carcinogenics in it, you're still going to have a small percentage of people that are going to have cancer. In that sense, you're always going to have that. Now, uh, in that society, uh, if we had all of the factors where we had resources, we had appropriate places where people can use their dope and get clean, we had education, we had vocational training, we had medical people that can actually help these folks out, get through substance abuse or not even getting started, yes, we should have decriminalization. But it wouldn't work if you did it tomorrow in this society, you know, with, because again, the 
capitalism, the marketing, the trying to make money is always going to create situations where, you know, greed, if that's your motivating factor, uh, we're going to have problems. What does decriminalization mean exactly? If a, ca like a cop catches with me with cocaine, he can't do anything? No. Uh, depending on, you know, who you are, how much cocaine uh, and so on and so on. You know, instead of going, you know, with these people, an example would be, you know, you could look at actually Portugal. It's a nice example. They end up having to show up in front of a magistrate of some sort. And there is 9, 10, 15 people there. You got social, social, social workers, psychologists, psychiatrists, medical doctors, and then you have a legal team. They evaluate your situation. Uh, certain things are placed on you where you have to go into treatment. You see what I'm saying? So there's still a <sighs> system, though. Absolutely a system. Right, yeah. yeah, I don't want. So okay. again, that's why I say in a society like this, you know, you legalize marijuana, which we have, and I don't know what the marijuana strains are today and all this stuff. You know, guys are going to be trying to make a buck out of it. So if that means this is the treatment for anxiety, depression, suicide, the heroin addiction, methamphetamine addiction, benzo addiction, this is what you need to do. And I want to make $2 billion. It's not going to work, right? Mm -hmm. But when I say decriminalization, I mean in a progressive same educated justice oriented society where we care about each other and all the systems work together to get over this it's not just decriminalizing and the guys you know uh, slamming heroin on the street corner <laughs> <laughs> well yeah it, i feel like if someone wants to do heroin they're going to do heroin whether it's legal or not absolutely so ask him if you got any kickbacks from the pharmaceutical companies to push certain opiates it's a great question, and I get stuff like this on my YouTube. It's not a great question, actually. No, no offense to the person. I, well, I no, get, doctors get, were prescribed. I mean, yeah. um, they were uh, bribed in the '90s. In some ways, they yeah. were. So here's my response to that. You know, but you know, I made a video about kratom. And someone saying, "This guy's," you know. We barely keep our systems afloat. I, I don't market anything. You know, you think so? I am the guy that when I was dealing with residents, and everyone hated me for this in academic, I would not let the pharmaceutical companies even bring these guys breakfast, right? I'm saying, I'll buy you breakfast out of my own pocket. You got a lifetime of being influenced by pharmaceutical companies. You are not getting even breakfast. In my medical practice or my IOP, which they don't really come, but let's say my medical practice, come in my medical practice. You know what you're gonna see? Picture of Hendrix picture of Led Zeppelin, picture of Radiohead, you're going to see zero pharmaceutical advertisings except for a few drugs which I really advocate, hepatitis C treatment. I'm big on that, right? The Suboxone stuff. And they don't even like visiting me because when they come and sit down and visit me, and they all know me by now, right? They're like, you know, I make it clear. I'm like, you're a salesperson. I don't need to be educated by you for the drugs I give, please stop. So a few of them I've made great relationships with, like the hepatitis C guys, he's great. He's down with treating. And you know, he just points me out, hey, this data come out. I'm very clear, look, I spent a lifetime looking at data. I know what's bullshit and what's not, and how you know the, the whole uh, clinical uh, um, uh, pu publishing industry, most of the data's garbage, right? So I'm fully aware of that, right? This is what I did for a living, right? Teach residents how to read data. So I get nothing from these guys. Every once in a while, me and the hepatitis C rep, because I'm so big on hepatitis C rep, I let him, we go out to dinner 
and uh, you know maybe twice a year and he takes my staff why because I and then he brings a really good educator on hepatitis C who's like the king of this stuff this guy's my hepatologist 30 years university this and that and I like him there because he can get my staff oriented and tuned that I need to treat all uh, addicts or test all addicts for hepatitis C so that's the extent of what I get okay is there any other hepatitis C competitors that were maybe might be more effective that didn't take your staff out to dinner? <laughs> you know, my <laughs> staff doesn't get to go out to enough dinners for me okay, to start yeah. shopping uh, for hepatitis C competitors, but uh, no. My my dad was a pharmacist, was a drug rep. Oh, really? So I don't know. no, I mean, he's he's retired yet. now, but like in the nineties, yeah, like oh yeah, somebody told he me. took he took all these doctors, you know. His company would take doctors out to Hawaii and all this stuff. Yeah, you can't do that anymore. It's yeah. all illegal. <laughs> Were you ever a part of that? Did you ever get to go to Hawaii or anything? Or? No, unfortunately, I came into medicine. I always come into things too late, uh, you know, uh, with money and with, uh, yeah. with the getting the gifts from the pharmaceuticals. I do love pens. So if anybody out there wants yeah. to bring me pens, keychains, flashlights, please bring it. Yeah, we had a lot of ambient merch in our house ambient z drug yeah oh is that you can like die from it or it's, withdrawals it, or whatever yeah you want me to tell you a little bit about it? no no it's fine <laughs> no, please let me I, I can tell you about a lot of things um it's very addictive it is oh yeah like you can't sleep without it like at one point you should not be using something like ambient long term these were these first it was barbiturates then it was benzodiazepines valium was the cure-all for everything yeah, yeah. and then in the 90s the whole ambient z drug class of drugs which is a slight chemical offshoot sorry I wait 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 you. no no wait this what? Thing. oh you're filming this yeah oh yeah i can yeah, yeah. I don't. I never, I, I usually cut them off around like 40 minutes so the cards aren't used to this much space, but so I'm, Sorry. Just, I'm just, so I'm just having to delete some stuff here. Don't delete our stuff. It's so much no, fun. No, no, not our stuff. It's, <laughs> I'm just it's, stuff, it's stuff I've already, do whatever it's stuff I've already uploaded. All right. Let's see. Okay, sorry. Go, go on about it. Yeah, so, you know, this is uh, fantastic. Again, this is a society and a kind of marketing that we live in. So, you know, in the 60s and before that, it was barbiturates, right? Mm -hmm. you know, it's fantastic. You know, it's sedating, sleep, X, Y, but that stuff is highly addicting. Not only that, it has a very narrow therapeutic index for overdose. You, you know, you could take just enough. And then all of a sudden, Valium came around in the 70s. And if you go back and look at the ads across the planet, you know, my, every mother was on Valium, you know, for hysteria, for anxiety, for sleeplessness, all the things. They, it's not addicting. It's wonderful stuff. And every person on the planet was addicted to Valium. Then we realized benzodiazepines are highly addicting, so we can't just be giving it to someone. Ah, you got a little bit of hysteria, like in my parts of the world, you know, Middle East or the, the Latino one. You know, again, I can say this because I'm from over there. My mother probably was on Valium in the 70s because she had to deal with me as a kid. Then in the 90s, we came out with this, you know, these great non-addicting sleep medications, you know, the ambient class, which we call the Z drugs, right? Okay, it's addicting. Yeah. 
and it's highly abusive. All of these medications have wonderful places as an arsenal a clinician should use. The problem is we use them inappropriately too much too long. Think about the pharmaceutical company, they want to increase sales, right? You know, if I'm gonna give you Ambien, here's how I will give you Ambien, right? You know, uh, most of the time guys are on it every day and I remind them, you know, I know the doctor didn't tell you this, but this is a short-term solution to get that sleep cycle back on or deal with the grief of the loss of your mother for the next few days for sleep. You should not have been on this for every single night for the last five years, okay? Your sleep cycle is completely disrupted and we have to get that back on. So this is what I, I, I deal with all these things besides heroin. And so if I am going to give you Ambien, you're gonna get about seven of them for the month. I'm gonna be very clear with you. First, I educate you about the dangers of Ambien or whatever else we're using. You know, it's a Z drug. It's just as addicting of everything else you've been on. I've, I have to know you for months and I've been treating you for months and you have to be on your best behavior during those months. And then you got something coming up. Let's try the seven, you want some Ambien? I'm gonna give you seven of them for this month. Keep in mind, it's not a regular thing. You're not gonna get a 30 days of one. You're gonna follow with me in two weeks and tell me how many you got left, what's going on, and get it out of your mind. You're gonna get another prescription. So use it wisely. That's how you use a drug. Not just right, you know, on TV. Did you know the United States is one of three first world nations, and that might have changed since I looked it up, that allows direct pharmaceutical to consumer advertising. If you go to most progressive nations, you know, what do I know if the nuke company is advertising to me about what an awesome nuke this is, we should get it to uh, protect America? Wouldn't that be silly? Why are you directly advertising to consumers where they come into the doctor and say, I want this because this, uh, this works? And if the doctor for a few years, if he said no, and he works for a hospital system, that goes in his possible pay raise, in his rating. You see, the whole system is off. Well, yeah, it's just like uh, Sorry, climate change or anything. It's all, you know, a lot of money tied up in it. So uh, the only solution to that is just uh, new policies and education, I guess, over time. See, we go back to what I said. Education yeah. will root out much of the evils in our world. Yeah. Well, I guess I'm just confirming, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's right. You know. Yeah, we go back to that. Jules, you think that's, I guess, what am I asking? Ask him what he thinks about jewel addiction, but. The cigarette? Yeah. Is uh, You think that's a good alternative for smokers to go to to wean off nicotine? I, I don't have. Uh, uh, I'm going to say this again. I'd like to know the real good scientific data of what's going on yeah. and have a good epidemiological understanding of this. But if I was going to take an educated guess and speculation, it can potentially be a possible positive thing. And that's my honest answer. I don't like to give people nonsense if I don't have. Yeah, it's probably definitely yeah, healthier. I want to be than, honest, so, yeah. you know, it could potentially be. What do you, uh, yeah, you hear about psychedelics helping treat addiction, depression. Yeah. You know anything about that? Sure. I know everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's, yeah, let's talk about that. Yeah. Uh, 
we're talking about psychedelics in general. I won't get into particulars. I'm going to make some general comments about that. You know, people go down for ibogaine. Uh, people go down for ayahuasca. I'm going to say this about that part of the things people are doing for addiction. Be extremely cautious. Uh, it hasn't been investigated. It hasn't been controlled. Uh, we don't know where you're going. You don't know where you're going. And again, there's a lot of hype and media about how th this can do it. Uh, this can treat your addiction. But I will say this. In general, some of the data that I'm starting to see, psychedelics, mushrooms, the whole, let's call it the whole psychedelic class, I believe there's an incredible amount of potential that is therapeutic for PTSD, for potentially addiction, anxiety, severe depression, grief. Okay. Well, I, well aren't all those just boiled down to having not enough serotonin, glutamate, or and dopamine? Yes. Yeah. Right? Uh, but nevertheless, uh, I, I believe some of the data coming out, in addition to therapy, some of those can be potentially very beneficial for treatment, management, and long-term or short-term care for all of these. So I will say that. I also feel... Oh, there's a spiritual element to a lot of these things that can be very awakening. Yeah. I know most doctors may not kind of say this and agree with that, but I say it with caution. I am certainly not telling anybody go down there and start <laughs> doing some DMT shrooms or whatever, right? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely not. Uh, I feel that if you rein it in, and again, FDA and these systems are not all bad. Everyone thinks there's a conspiracy. And, you know, I don't deny everything's driven by money. But I believe with the appropriate research, with the appropriate training from the medical community, uh, these things can have profound therapeutic and even spiritual outcome, positive outcomes, whatever that means, and interpret it however you want. So I am a full advocate of further research into all of those things. I don't want to get into all the nutty details of some of the research going on in Canada and even the United States for a lot of this stuff. There's good research going on in small funded communities. But yes, I think there's a lot of potential there, but not the way people do it. They make their own decision. They go out there and they use this stuff and well, the, the only one I know of that's legal now is ketamine, right? Yeah, yeah. Ketamine, yeah. yeah. Ket you, you, uh, yeah. Are you for ketamine? Yeah, well, <laughs> again, ketamine is not a, just so you know, it's not a hallucinogenic, right? It's a it kind of a little bit of a, but it does do some of that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, they're using that actually for pain. Ketamine is used quite a bit for pain. Right. And we are more of a reactionary society than a critical thinking one within the pain community and within even my field emergency medicine they're using that more and more as people come in in acute pain i have extreme reservations about ketamine because i know it's a substance of abuse hmm. and i know people that abuse it and have abused it and and i you know i think the medical community is just reaching for stuff again everything here no one approaches things in a sober-minded way 
You want to give someone some opiates? They give them 500 of them, right? Or the highest doses, right? You want to legalize marijuana? Now it's a treatment for everything. It's, it's, we're not a sober-minded, critical thinking, or an empathetic society in approaching other human beings. Ketamine, um, I have my reservations, and I need to do a lot more research in what my colleagues in emergency medicine are doing right now in the pain clinic, but I've seen some people on heavy doses of ketamine with extreme... Uh, abuse potential or even being abused at this time hmm you think kratom's safe wow did you see my <laughs> you want to get me in a lot of trouble huh i don't know <laughs> uh, what do you mean by like conspiracy what do you mean like government's gonna come get you what do you mean no no because i made actually a video oh. about kratom uh-huh. and uh, you know some of my uh, friends were saying don't do that you're gonna have this kratom community come after you i'm like i have to be honest about oh it. yeah you're so, against it no no well Okay, yeah. <laughs> so you're you yeah, yeah. I love that. No, yeah. Uh, look. Uh, yeah, everyone thinks it's fine and harmless. Yeah. You know, the, <laughs> the component of the plant, there's two of them. One of them is mitragyna, mitragyna, and then there's a 7-hydroxy, I think, mitragyna. Can't quite recall right now. But this is a great opportunity for me to clarify some things. Whatever that component of that plant is and what therapeutic effect it can potentially have. When we talk about Kratom in this setting and what the videos I made, we're not just talking about that. We're pe- talking about people getting a pill and a powder and so forth on the internet, which in the West has become sort of the... Uh, wild, wild West. Yes, and it's how people get connected to Kratom. And uh, even if we had the pure substance, right... This stuff, we need a lot of research, even if we have the pure something, we need quite a bit of research, control, and and outcomes that we've studied, and then this stuff should be prescribed. Uh, and you know, someone's gonna say, oh, like you guys prescribed all the opiates? Yes, like that, but let's do it better and right and more controlled way. Yeah. You know, Kratom is a substance of potential abuse, and you're gonna see more abuse of it, and you're gonna see more people ending up in hospitals for that abuse. You know, some of the things I see is, you know, I made a comment that, you know, there's deaths associated with this stuff now, okay? And, uh, yes, there are. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think that was one big things like no one can die from it uh, no no there's a, quite a few it's, it's starting to pile up and then i would get comments back oh those that's all those people had other things in their systems yes you you're right most of them did a few didn't and if you go to the international data there's quite a uh, few that it was just pure kratom and so when you make that comment and you 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 create a firm belief in yourself about this stuff is safe you're really missing on the critical analysis and thinking part go and take a look at those deaths okay go look at the autopsy reports it's all online i looked at about 11 or 12 of them okay what did those people that i looked at had in their system most of these folks took their antidepressant took their normal dose of benzo took their uh, you know other medications and they died and almost every single one of them had the same thing. Uh, urinary retention, lung injuries, okay? And so in the thinking world, 
you make inductive conclusions, right? You start to gather data and make some sort of educated guesses about what is the component in that mixture that caused this death. And it appears to be pointing to this kratom stuff people are thinking, okay? Well, that's dangerous until we know a lot more about kratom. We have to get to a place where we understand this stuff. And there's so much reaction out there against me when I make these comments. I mean, people will come and say, uh, you have no idea what you're talking about. Obviously, you've never tried Kratom. Well, I've never tried heroin either, nor have I ever had pancreatic cancer, nor has my heart ever stopped. But I will used to be pretty good at treating you when your heart stopped. Well, so just like ketamine, it needs a little more research before you can fully advocate it, yeah. Uh, I would say different than ketamine. We have a lot of data on ketamine, right? It's a substance we use in uh, veterinary medicine. It's a substance that we have a lot of history of. It's pure, the substance most of the time that we're getting is prescribed. Well, this stuff is people think getting on the internet and it falls prey to the same marketing and propaganda and people's lack of understanding. You know, you know, right there in the comments, there's one guy saying, man, this stuff was a bitch to get off of. I spent eight months and I, my dose kept going up. And the next comment is, hey, you're a moron, Dr. B, because... Uh, this stuff is not addicting at all. I'm like, well, you know, I'm a moron, but lead the other seven. You know, you know what I mean? It's a very strange world that we're operating in. You know, no one, no, uh, nothing means anything. Uh, but yes, Kratom, uh, if we're talking about the pure substance, needs a lot of research. And then the other thing is people keep talking about this stuff has been used and where it comes from, which is Southeast Asia and some African parts of Africa, it's been used medicine and therapeutically for thousands of years. No, we have a few hundred years of, uh, and also, no, over there it's used to, you know, give you energy throughout the day. That's not therapeutic or in a med you know, medical sense. And there's a lot of abuse in Southeast Asia and the African areas as well. They actually have, I think in Malaysia, they have, uh, they have uh, uh, Kratom, uh, addiction clinics, right? So where uh, in Malaysia, wow. I, I have to double check on that, but there's a few clinics. And then I looked at some data of calls into the poison centers in Southeast Asian countries where they're looking at the overdoses of Kratom. So you, you know, you can't just get on there and say, you know, and if you feel strongly and religiously about it, I'm sorry, I don't know what to tell you. Have you ever struggled with addiction yourself? <laughs> like you don't have to answer that um let, let me answer it uh I, i'll do my best to answer that uh, uh you know a lot of my patients say you're the most abnormal normie i've ever seen because you get my plight um in terms of substance abuse i come from a family where there was probably more on both sides but at least on one side um I can say it killed my father when I was four years old and he was 41, maybe five years old, okay? And you know, most of my life, I don't even discuss that. I and mean, if my mother hears this because of social cultural barriers, it's not something to open for discussion, but okay, my father was taken away from me at a very young age and I lived this in my early years. And I wasn't, I was a pretty bright kid at the age of one, two, three, four, five. And I can tell you it's a nightmare to watch someone that you love dearly do this, 
it's a nightmare to go a lifetime without my father. You know, I probably it was something that affected me profoundly till I was from 49 in my uh, late 20s or early 30s. Uh, I have uh, struggled uh, off and on. I, I believe I have an addictive personality. I have struggled with tobacco most of my life. And, uh, um, you know, addiction is so much more than doing heroin. Um, uh, as I told you, there's a sociological factor to it, and, and it's, it's, it's an approach to things. So, no, I have never done something like heroin or methamphetamines. Yes, I've struggled with addiction in many ways for most of my life, and it has had a profound impact on who I am uh, because, I, you know, my father passed away at such a young age, and I was so aware of what was going on and watching him go into that good night with so much anger that I, uh, you know, most of my, I, I, I didn't even think about this till a couple of years ago. I was like, wait, I'm an addiction doctor and this is something that affected my life. Um, so that's uh, about as much as I'm willing to open up on that. Yeah, yeah. This is why it's so important. You know what? There's no judgment. I don't, I don't give a shit what you've done, right? Let's get over that. That's all the addiction. Well, here's the interesting thing. I told you I struggle with tobacco. I have some other health issues. I'm 49 years old. I have a one-year-old son. Okay, it's my firstborn ever. And when I sit back and I think the social circumstances and situation is, and you know, when I see this thing, it makes my heart melt. And I have, I have existential angst about his existence. You know, there's this love and guilt and horror at the same time of that I've brought this precious thing into this world and I'm going to have to somehow figure out how to get him to a place where he's safe and he's sober-minded and he has a moral compass and he's educated and he's good to fellow human beings and he makes a change. Well, me and him are in a very difficult social situation. Yet I have this problem with tobacco. And everybody around me knows that I need to be around for this boy to get him to that safe harbor. Well, am I not a piece of shit in some ways? if I continue to smoke. And so I extrapolate that thought to all of my patients and the things that they do and the judgments that they have to absorb from loved ones, from the legal system, from family. I am no different than my patients because I have a moral obligation to a kid that desperately needs me and I love dearly with every bone in my body and I don't take great care of myself. And in that sense, I have such a visceral, deep, intimate understanding of my patients and how society views them. You know anything about determinism? Versus free will? Yeah. Absolutely. I told you I know everything. <laughs> Do you ever wonder if we have free will? Or if we don't? Is the cause of the determinism God or the Big Bang? Oh, because it depends who you ask. If you ask a theologian, they'll say this stuff about God. If you ask a pure, strictly, uh, you know, unadulterated philosopher that's a professional, he'll say, let's pretend it starts from Big Bang. Uh, how do I feel about uh, uh, determinism versus free will? I don't. I believe... No, it doesn't matter. Yeah, I mean, I have a lot of thoughts on it, of intellectual interest and pursuit, 
But those thoughts for me are purely academic, fun, and magical. You want to know what I think about determinism? I'm going to tell you what I think about determinism and in terms of the Abrahamic tradition, which I consider Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. That's the Abrahamic tradition. Here's how I feel. I don't... The concept of faith is going to have to incorporate some degree of predeterminism, right? You know, there's a Lord and a God, and there's some degree of, you know, the universe is going to go how it goes. And here's my thought on it. I think it's magical that I struggle against the status quo. I think it's magical that I fight and try to change things when I think that, A, there might be a predetermined set that things are going to go in this in the metaphysical sense and b i'm going against the mainstream of the way things are and in that fine lining is where i find free will to fight and faith and through that i can express my autonomy and it's for no gain whatsoever you know, people think we make a lot of money doing what I do. It's no for no other reason that I have decided this is the right thing to do. I will probably lose at what I'm doing, but you have to do the right thing. And this comes out of the a lot of the, I think, Calvinist uh, interpretation tradition of Christianity. I like that dark view of the world, that sort of apocalyptic view. It kind of resonates with me. It resonates with what I do, who I treat. And within that, I think, is where I find, hmm, could there be some sort of determinism where things are kind of laid out the way they are, but the universe has also given me free will to fight against certain things and express myself and be an autonomous human being. So I incorporate both of them in my own way and how I interpret the religions, the world, and the way things are. Is there ever really a way to completely get rid of addictions or do they always linger somehow? Asks Ayaz. Great question. It almost doesn't matter uh, if we look at it in terms of the disease model. Chronic, relapsing, remitting disease. I simply aim for long-term remission. Hmm. I want to decrease the frequency and the depth of the disease. So. For one guy, it might be a relapse would mean eight-week run and lose everything you have. I want to get him to a place where, you know, let's say one night he takes one oxy from using heroin five years down the line. Immediately, he can self-manage that and move on with his life, okay? So I don't want to give you that stigma that you're an addict for life because that's a 12-step thing and that's not what I do, okay? But I want you to have a vigilance and an awareness that this thing is around. But don't be weighed down and anchored down by this addiction thing. Addiction is not who you are. It is a challenge in your life that should make you better and grow. Overcome it. And that's where, again, faith comes. Determinism, okay, I'm going to say you're an addict. Okay, does that mean you're an addict for life and you got to go to a meeting every single morning and declare it? Maybe for some. But no, that's not what I mean. Be vigilant of the reality of the situation. Take care and watch for it and use it to become a better human being with a better moral compass and achieve more in this world from what you've learned from it. 
And that's how I feel about that. That's how I want to answer it. I don't want to say you're an addict for life, so you know, go to you need to no. Yeah. I'm not gonna do that. Balance sheet recession asks, is procrastination a form of addiction? Procrastination, <laughs> huh? I don't know. So wait, Adderall everyone has foggy heads or you know, how do you determine if they have A D D or not? And and then put them on Adderall? Yeah. Someone's asking that, or are you asking? I'm that? asking that because I take Vyvanse. So, so I don't. Uh, number one, I, I try not to diagnose that. In fact, I was telling Jason today, I really want to get a better grasp of this thing. As to some of the things I've been looking at, let me answer it from an epidemiological position first, and then we'll get into the specifics. From an epidemiological position, you do see that diagnoses and prescriptions just skyrocket over the last since 1990. Okay, and in fact, I was just looking at this data last night. Okay, mm -hmm. so uh, uh, again, uh, if I'm if you're going to be diagnosed with this disease, ADD, not disease, this condition, ADD, ADHD. Now you got the adult onset, onset. You got the child thing. Yeah, uh, and then you know you can talk about it from an anthropological perspective. You know how does it couch into our modern society? All of that, all of that aside, I will just answer this. I will just say this. If you're going to give somebody a prescription, number one, there's two arms to the management of this issue. One, it's behavioral, okay? And then the other tool you have is pharmaceuticals, right? You, you got pharmacological intervention. Both should be used for all people. And if you use the pharmacological intervention, especially in someone young or even someone older, because there's such a potential for abuse of these medications, you should do it the same way I'm advocating of treating the medication pharmacological intervention for the drug addict. You know, let's say you come in and let's say if that's the kind of doctor I was where I'm treating this kind of thing and we make that diagnosis. There's a vagueness and a lot of room of interpreting that diagnosis. And if I make that decision to use pharmacological intervention, I should follow you extremely closely I should adjust the medication and I should see how it's impacting your life in a positive or negative sense and monitor closely for substance abuse. And that's how I would start someone on pharmacological stimulant intervention for ADD, ADHD, or any sort of attention diagnosis for a condition. And then also advocate for psychosocial intervention to make your life easier. Uh, ask him about gambling not being respected as a serious addiction. Very serious addiction. Yeah. Uh, in fact, it's one of, you know, whether it's pornification, gambling, obsession with UFC. You know, look, most of this society has addiction issues, right? Most yeah. of our society, whether it's shopping, whether it's gambling, we are looking for quick dopamine rushes one way or another because that is where we've been led to. Again, it's it's endemic, it's systematic, and it's horrible. Gambling is a serious addiction. Uh, uh, you know, I was sort of, uh, when I was younger, a little bit involved in that world. I mean, this stuff destroys lives. In fact, it destroys communities. I looked at some data from, this is maybe 25 years ago, I was looking at some data from, I think it was a Christian coalition, but it was good data. 
and it showed any place where a casino opens in California, in that city, the coffers of the police department, because they do these uh, background and they check 300 bucks a pop and you know the city's taxes goes up. But in that city within a five year period, and again, this is old data that I'm trying to go from memory, you gotta bear with me, uh, divorces go up, suicides go up, hmm. uh, unemployment goes up, crime goes up. This is California. Addiction is, a, uh, gambling is a serious problem. Hmm. And it's a problem of addiction. Well, how does someone combat that if it's not? How does someone, I'm sorry? Combat that if it's not like an external sub substance, you know? You mean a person suffering from uh, gambling addiction? Yeah, they need to go into uh, uh, you know. Right now, I think just counseling. Yeah, yeah, I think CBT and uh, might be. I I don't quote me on this. I believe cognitive behavioral therapy might be one of the treatment. But again, you know, there's this brings something else up. We don't have the resources and access. The average Joe, you know, to be able to get good help for some of these things, people don't have it. You know, they can't call the top behavioral intervention doctor for gambling in, uh, I don't know, uh, West Los Angeles or somewhere and go and start seeing him. Most people don't have those tools. It's tragic. Yeah. Hmm. It's kind of all comes back to education. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> goes back to universal health care, goes back to education, goes back to putting our money where that rant study showed education and treatment um how does he feel about the fact that it's not the addict's fault it's their surroundings um would you say it's like 90 percent environment and like 10 percent their genetics or vulnerability or predisposed yeah. yeah genetics only creates a predisposition yeah yeah doesn't mean anything. Right. right? Uh, I don't separate the two. For me, it's a continued spectrum. And if you really study, uh, you know, the linguistics of conceptual expression in general, you will come to the understanding of this dichotomous binary things that we have, like in this case, genes, nature versus nurture. This is all nonsense. It's a spectrum. That being the case, I'm a strong advocate and proponent of environmental influences in the pathology of such things. Right. I guess tips for, just tips for someone that has a loved one who's addicted to something. Approach them when the time is right. Uh, Oftentimes, especially in my world, you know, I'm, I'm an ethnic, you know, uh, in, in, in the ethnic world, you know, there's a lot of judgment and harsh criticism and the approach is always confrontational or, uh, you know, taken that way. Uh, do not do that, you know. Try to approach in a non-judgmental way. Be supportive. And I think the hardest thing for those people around these folks is to figure out what is enabling and what is empowering. And enabling is very dangerous because it could kill the addict, right? When they don't go to work because let's say they got too drunk last night again and again and again, and now you're calling their work for them. Hey, my husband or my wife or my son, he's sick. You are allowing them 
to have their substance abuse or alcoholism or addiction to get in the way of the natural consequences that it should have. That's enabling. That's what the therapists and stuff consider enabling. And that is dangerous. So you have to somehow in your reality come up with a way where you're loving, non-confrontational, and not enabling. And sometimes that takes a little bit of time and practice and repetition. Out of all the drugs, which one's the most addicting? Which, which one's the worst that you deal with? Which one's the most addicting? If you read uh, North American, uh, European textbooks, it's going to say cocaine is one of the most addicting substances, which, by the way, I, I, I will get to your question, is a very interesting comment uh, that the uh, medical community makes, and I'll tell you why. You know, here, cocaine is supposed to be the most addicting substance by sort of definition to some extent. And this actually proves my sociological argument about, you know, the environment matters. Well, go to the Andes and they've been chewing on coca leaves for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And you find very little addiction. Go to the Middle East or North Africa. Do you know what GAT is? C-H-A-T. It's also sort of a stimulant. And these guys are chewing this stuff regularly. It does not get in the way in their life and consume them. And yet in this society, addiction is all. Uh, cocaine is very consuming, very high risk of addiction, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I just want to make that comment about, uh, you know, and, and I think their question was, I'm sorry, what is the most addicting substance? Yeah. You know, uh, it really depends for the person, but you know, things like heroin, you know, what we want to put is on an index. What has, what is the most addicting substance, the most destructive substance? If we want to go by epidemiological data, and what is causing the most damage and Numbers, health consequences yeah. and death? Sugar. Yeah. Okay? <laughs> By World Health Organization standards, sugar is the worst. Right up there is tobacco. Right up there is alcohol. The kind of death and disease sugar is causing across the planet is insane. Hmm. This is what I mean by we're not a very rational society, right? Uh, sometime in the 2000s when the second bush was... Uh, you know, leading the nation. I, I, and I, you got to look this up and see the details. I believe it was the World Health Organizations or one of these international organizations reached out to them and say, look, you guys, you know, you got to put some warning labels on this sugar stuff. You know, if you look in America, we have had commercials of a one-year-old drinking Coca-Cola, right, promoting it. They're telling us you need to put labels on this stuff. And we do nothing about it and we go about our lives as if this stuff isn't causing mayhem, destruction, damage, and death. And in fact, I think the response from the American uh, position was that, screw you, we're not going to do it. And if you force us to or make more of a stink about it, we're not going to give our portion of the money. In fact, we did that when you look at the health metrics of the world that tells you how healthy a society is. We suck. Look at the data on worth of infant mortality. I mean, it just goes on and on and on and on. You know, what we get for the bank for our buck for healthcare, our health, we suck. And, and so, uh, you know, when you ask me something, what is the most addicting substance? Look, this stuff in the wrong context is all deadly. Heroin is, opiates are highly addicting. For another person, it's benzos. Alcohol, right? This stuff kills and puts a lot of people in the hospital. So I don't want to just answer that question yeah. because these are wrong 
these questions are couched in a wrong and you know Paradigm, the person's yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah exactly right. no, it's not the person's yeah, fault yeah, they're yeah. an intelligent person I just want people to really expand how they approach these things critical thinking and humanity whether it's your patient one on one how we treat our neighbors how I treat our brothers sisters mothers fathers you know, I, I want a paradigm shift in society, not only dealing with my patients and my programs, and that's hard as it is, I want everyone to have a paradigm shift in how we approach everything so that it affects public policy and public health standards. Any books you recommend? A lot. <laughs> okay, pick one. In regards to addiction or in on general? Helping, on helping someone overcome an addiction like a self-help book i don't read to yeah myself. sure yeah i don't i don't know any uh, give me a call if you want some. no behavioral you know uh, a cogn uh, cognitive behavioral therapy books uh, i don't know uh, <laughs> it's mostly textbooks you read i read a lot of papers <laughs> and i you know a book i really recommend i'll tell you what i recommend uh number one i really uh all of his books, and the last one was called, uh, you know, Gabor Mate, and his last book, In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, and actually he had more books against that. There's one that, that's easy reading for everybody, it gives a very nice insight into the despair and the depth and the scope of what addiction is. Gabor Mate, In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, there's one. And another one I uh, really recommend uh, gives you it's a social evaluation of substance abuse within the context of Americana and what's happened here in the last 60 70 Sam Canonis dreamland I think that book but might, might have even been a he now uh, after he wrote he's a journalist I think Fresno Los Angeles wonderful writer keen journalist has done, uh, you know, and when he wrote that book, I was almost in awe of how he was able to put a lot of these factors that contributed to the current opiate epidemic, how he was able to research. He got a good understanding of the pharmacology, the behavioral issues, and then put it in a larger social context. He does a beautiful job of that. Sam Canonis, Quinones, and it's called Dreamland. And then Gabor Mate, who's an addiction expert from Canada, a little bit controversial, but I think him and I share a lot of the same views. I think those two books are wonderful for you. I think you should read them. Sweet, yeah. Is it true neurons repair themselves? Great. I love that question. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to expand it. Is it true brains repair themselves? Yeah. Or is it, I'm going to even expand, and I'm going to reframe the question. I think <laughs> what they're trying to get to, now neurons repair, it takes a long time. We're talking about just pure physical damage. It's a very slow healing process for a physically traumatized uh, nerve to heal. I believe their question is, after substance abuse, can you get better? Oh my God, this data, if you look into the developmental biology, neurobiology literature, going back to the 90s, you know, our general perception is you're old, you can't learn, right? wrong absolutely wrong hmm. you can always improve even after certainly if you start substance abuse early the general perception is if you start at 14 your brain stops developing at 14 the normal brain in western culture finishes its development by the age of 25 that's for the most part true if you've been doing substance abuse and you think you're done over with and you can't repair your brain build new neurons build new memory build new synapses wrong 
everybody can continue to improve their mental health and neuroarchitecture and biology, physiology, well into advanced age, whether you've had substance abuse issues or not. And this stuff actually for a normal person actually has a lot of offsetting effect with dementia, Alzheimer's, all these things. Use your brain, you know the saying, use it or lose it. Absolutely, do not worry. Engage in neurodevelopmental and cognitive growth, engage in emotional growth, and you will change the architecture of your brain. Is there any objective evidence i.e., I guess, brain scans, maybe, that addiction is, exists in the human body. Yeah, yes. Okay. The, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. So when you say evidence, again, we have to be careful with, you know, addiction is not something you can grab, right? We do know that people with addictive addiction does that suffer of this thing have profound changes in their midbrain areas uh, their nucleus accumbens, their processing of dopamine, certain, and you know, you can do this kind of studies many ways, but if you bring it up from the rat to the human being, we're certainly not going in there measuring, you know. So what we're doing is functional scans. These guys do functional scans, right? Hmm. And see what lights up when this occurs in this group of people. And there's plenty of data and studies in that way where we can define deficiencies or overwork of certain areas of the brain in people suffering from addiction. So yes, and in fact, you know, there's a lot of studies and data that kind of support this kind of thing. It's a disease of the midbrain and dopamine. Right. And someone can be born with low dopamine. They can. Okay. I'm sure they can. I'm sure I was born with low dopamine. I'm always... So anything you want to shout out? Yeah, yeah, of that's course. What I'm, that's yeah. what I'm gonna do. Uh, yeah. You know, I uh, check out our YouTube channel. I think it's called Doctor B Addiction Recovery. I try to really. People ask me a lot of questions that are I can't answer because it's unprofessional to answer. You, you know, uh, it's irresponsible. But we have a good YouTube channel that we're growing. It's part of our nonprofit endeavor. We have. Uh, Aftercare, which is partial hospitalization, intensive outpatient treatment, outpatient treatment, which is American Addiction Institute of Mind and Medicine. We're in Orange County. We just did a really cool subreddit a couple of weeks ago on a Sunday. I don't know how you can plug into that, but we answered a lot of questions there. And we also had a lot of researchers, academics, and doctors ask us really cool questions. And that's it. Uh, please. Huh? Oh. <laughs> Didn't I say that? Just say, mm. you said summer, just say AMA. Well, I mean, yeah, the link will be the same place, though. It, oh. it, yeah, but. Okay, it, yeah. We, uh, we did a cool AMA on Reddit, and okay. that got a lot of traffic and it answers a lot of questions. Sweet. Um, check out all of Dr. B's info in the description. Um, let us know what you think about all this in the comments, and thanks for watching. Thanks for subscribing. I will see you next week.